I want to invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13. Uh, We are going through our sermon series on big questions, and this morning we come to this question of why does God allow suffering? And I have to admit that I'll probably create more questions for you this morning than answer them, because it is a broad and deep and difficult topic. And so I just want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13 as we read this Psalm of David, where David is lamenting and he's taking his pain, his hurt, the stuff that he can't make sense of, and he's going to the Lord. And so read this along with me, and this is great language for us to have as Christians as we learn what it looks like to lament and as we talk about this morning and deal with suffering. Follow along with me, Psalm 13, and we'll read the whole psalm this morning. This is the word of the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. 9-11-2001, planes crashed into the World Trade Towers, and many of us watched on TV as they collapsed, killing almost 3,000. February of 2015, 21 Coptic Christians are beheaded on a beach in Libya by a group named ISIS, which we also probably heard of. COVID, no doubt has led to much isolation, has led to much loneliness, sickness, and death. And then there's you and me. There's us. There's our words and our actions that hurt ourselves and actually hurt others. And then there's me taking issue with an employee at Disney because I'd lost my Disney magic band and I could see it right there and I couldn't get it because of policy and procedure. It was nonsensical, but yet it was revealing me. You see, there is evil within, and there's evil without. It is present out there in the world, but it's also in here in our hearts. We see and we experience suffering and pain in our hearts. Don't they truly groan? Don't they truly ache? They do. People suffer in this world, and you don't have to go far in the news or your own life experiences to see how suffering and evil are very present in this world. No one is exempt from this. We all face it. And in Christianity, God says that his people will actually suffer in following him. John 16, 33. There's suffering and there's evil, and it's a reality that we can't dismiss. You see, every religion, every philosophy, belief system, worldview, individual, 
we have to face and we have to contend with this fact that there is real evil and real suffering in the world. It really is an issue that everyone has to deal with. It's not just Christianity that has to give an answer. Even if you believe that evil is an illusion, like Buddhism or Christian science, it's still a very painful and troublesome illusion. It's one that is felt and one that is experienced. And as a part of living life, we have to deal with evil and suffering, and our attempts to ignore it are short-lived. But who or what is responsible for this? The Pew Research Center surveyed over 6,400 American adults, including 1,400 evangelicals in September of 2021, about how they philosophically make sense of suffering and bad things happening to people. And the most common explanation was, it happens. They said this, Americans largely blame random chance along with people's own actions and the way society is structured for human suffering. While relatively few Christians blame God or voice doubts about the existence of God for this reason. And while say, while that may be true, there are many who have and do pose that question. They pose this question, why does God allow suffering? If he is all good, all powerful, righteous and holy, why does he permit it to go on? Why doesn't he end it? What could possibly be his reason for letting it go on anymore? Historically, atheists have said there can't be a God because of all the evil in this world. If this God is all good and all powerful, then he would put an end to it in every instance. And by virtue of the fact that there is suffering, then there can't be a God. And basically what they're saying is since there's no morally sufficient reason that I can think of, that we can think of, for the existence of evil, therefore there can be no God. How this argument is typically put is, if God is all good and all powerful, he should end all suffering. If he doesn't, then he's all good and not all powerful, because he wants to take it away, but he can't. Or, he's all powerful and not good, because he can take it away, but he won't. Or, he's not all good, nor is he all powerful, because he can't take it away, and also he doesn't care to take it away. Maybe this problem of evil is something you have wrestled with in your own life, and you're currently wrestling with, or you have questions about. And maybe you have experienced loss, you've experienced hurt, you've experienced harm, you've experienced all of those things, and you're asking, how could God allow this? Maybe there isn't a God, because if there, was, if there is, I want nothing to do with him because of what happened to me. And I want you guys to know this, that the Bible is not blind to the real struggle of suffering. It is throughout the pages of the Bible, this psalm that we read, uh, Psalm 13, it asks very hard questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And this is not poetic theatrics. He's being serious. He's being real. He's talking to God this way. And it's hard when you're suffering, trying to make sense of things, and there isn't a specific answer to the why of your particular situation, your specific pain. Like Job in the Bible, we're not told specifically why God has brought this specific thing into our lives. Your specific pain. 
like Job in the Bible, we're not told specifically why this has actually come into our lives. And so on one level, I'm going to tell you this morning that I don't know why God has brought suffering and evil into our lives. But on another level, I will say this, that God has a morally compelling, God has morally compelling reasons for ordaining the existence of evil. He has morally compelling reasons for ordaining the existence of evil. Let me explain. It's not just reasons, but morally compelling reasons. And by ordaining, I mean this, as Phil Riken says, not that God forces people to do things against their will, or that everything in the universe is moved by some immediate exercise of his divine power. Instead, God, who is the ultimate first cause, typically works out his purposes through human decisions, natural laws, and the many causes and reactions that are constantly at play in ordinary life. In other words, God, who is the ultimate first cause, he works out his purposes through secondary causes. This morning, uh, we will talk about the problem of evil, but we will have an eye to suffering because honestly, that's where we live, isn't it? When something hits us in that emotional realm, on an emotional level, it's when something happens to us or to someone else that it really challenges us. Our challenges our faith and our belief. It challenges our trust and our hope. So where do we start? In thinking of the problem of evil, it starts with what is evil. People are outraged, rightly so, by evil, both moral evil and natural evil. And by that I mean moral evil is the, are those willful things such as murder, rape, slander, etc. But then there's also natural evil, natural disasters like famines, floods, hurricanes, COVID. And so people are rightly so outraged by those things. We look around us and we see, uh, we see us and we see this world and we see that things do not operate perfectly. We see things are broken and breaking down. And Christianity would say that corruption came into the world through Adam and Eve and their disobedience to God's command. This breaking of God's law ushered in sin, which corrupted our relationship to God, our relationship to one another, and our relationship to this world. Sin now affects and it corrupts everything. It corrupts our bodies, physically, mentally, spiritually, as well as this world. We have entropy, for example. Things are going from order to disorder, not the other way around. Things are breaking down. And so evil is present in us, and it's in the world. But in talking about what is evil, what standard do we appeal to in order to even distinguish good from evil? Upon what basis do we call something evil? It has to be more than our own personal preference. So, for example, we can't say, uh, well, I personally did not prefer 9-11, but others did, and that's okay. No, we don't say that. We say it was utterly wrong, utterly wicked, and horrendous. We don't say that. We say that because um, we say it was utterly wrong and horrendous, Therefore, God can't exist because if he did, then he would have stopped it. Yet the moment we say that the world really should be one way and not another way, we're assuming that there is some moral order or set of values that transcends human beings, that overrides my personal feelings and says, this is right and this is wrong, regardless of how I feel. 
For those who say there can't be a God because of the problem of evil, typically those are those that hold an atheistic worldview. Uh, It really doesn't make sense for an atheist to claim on one level that our world came about by chance and has no purpose, or at the bottom there is pitiless indifference, a.k.a. Richard Hawkins. But on the other hand, to then say that the world really ought to be this way, it really ought to be different than the way it is, says who? Upon what basis does it, do they say that? Any religion, any philosophy, any belief system, any worldview, any individual in claiming the problem of evil has to answer this question. How do you know there isn't a morally sufficient reasons for the existence of evil? How do you know? How do you know? Some respond saying, well, I, I can't think of a reason, or we can't think of a reason, so therefore there cannot be a reason. Yet... We are human. We are finite. We are limited, and we only have a small amount of information about all the good that is in this world. How could we know that God does not have a morally compelling reason for ordaining the existence of evil? To know that, wouldn't we need to know all things? Wouldn't we need to be omniscient, all wise? In other words, we basically need to be God. Some of you here have thought through and you struggle with the problem of evil. And I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're asking the question. Some of you have friends that are wrestling through this question. But some of you here are asking a slightly different question. You're saying, I believe in this God, but why does he allow this to continue? Why doesn't he end it now? If you're all powerful and good, why don't you take this away? Or why did you let this happen to me? Why did you let this take place in my life? Why am I afflicted in this certain way? How do I make sense of this? Suffering is difficult, to say the least, but Christianity claims that it is not pointless. It actually has purpose. God has morally sufficient reasons for allowing suffering and evil in our lives. Suffering is not intrinsically right or good, But the suffering that does come into our lives, it has a purpose. And he takes it and he does something with it in our lives. In the Bible, we are told how evil came into this world through Satan. When tempting Eve to eat the fruit, they were not supposed to eat. And then she goes and she takes it to Adam and he eats. And instead of saying no and driving Satan out of the garden, he takes and he eats. But the Bible puts a heavier emphasis on how we are to trust God, even in the face of evil. We're not promised an answer for our individual situation. Job, for example, he didn't receive one. Psalm 88, if you were to read that, it ends on a low note with no explanation. Now, I don't say this to knock us into place saying, shut up, sit down, stop asking your questions. I'm not saying that for those reasons, but I'm saying rather to point out that since God knows all things, And we don't. And since God is good and sovereign over everything, and since he is for his own good and he's for the good of his people, then he calls us to trust him, even though we don't understand. He calls us to look to him and to rest in his character, even though we may never get an answer for the why of our suffering. And that's hard. But you know what? That truth, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like a light switch. 
that can take time, lots of time, to be massaged into our hearts and minds. Look at Job in the Old Testament. Do you think he went through what he went through in a day? No, not at all. It took time. God was working in his heart. Job was revealed. And God grew him in the process. We should ask questions. We should probe. We should be curious. We should grieve. We should have anguish. We should be honest. We should struggle to understand, and we should even despair over the effect of suffering. For example, that's what Psalm 13, verse 2, that's what David's doing there. He's despairing over the effect of suffering. But yet we do all of those things. We do all of those things from a heart that is postured toward God in faith, and that can look different ways. So how do we make sense of this? What could possibly be God's morally sufficient reasons for ordaining the existence of evil and suffering? What could possibly be his reasons? Well, Scripture is not exhaustive. Scripture does not give us every answer on this subject, but it gives us a few. Uh, And I'm just going to highlight two for us this morning. And the first one we see is that God, uh, one of his reasons, that to display his power and his mercy. Uh, we see this in a passage like Romans 9, 17 and 18. Uh, Paul, in answering the question of whether God is unjust in choosing some and not others to salvation, also known as the doctrine of election, he cites what God did with Pharaoh in the time of the Exodus. And Paul says this. He says, For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And there is so much to say on this. This is a sermon series in and of itself. But the one thing I want to point out that's evident is that God used evil and suffering in that situation with Pharaoh, who refused to obey the Lord and was by no means innocent, so that God's power and mercy would be made known. And so what we see in there is that there's power. God displays his power over Pharaoh and mercy to his people, Israel. There's more to be said on that, but you can see how God can use that. There's a morally sufficient reason how God can use that. But also he uses, one of his reasons is to punish sin. In the Old Testament, if you look in the Old Testament, God did this with Israel his chosen people, in response to their turning away from him, he used it as punishment upon the wicked nations as well. You can see this in the book of Habakkuk where uh, there's an example, basically where God is going to bring judgment against Israel using a wicked nation, Babylon. But then once that is complete, God is actually going to judge that nation, Babylon, and destroy them, wipe them out. Now this brings up a question, doesn't it? Are you saying that my suffering has brought my sin? Or I'm sorry, have you, has my suffering come because of my sin? Is that why I'm suffering? Is that why I've struggled? Is that why these things have happened to me in my life? Well, if you were to look at the book of Job, the answer is no. He was blameless. Job chapter 1, verse 1. He was not suffering for his sin. Job 1, 8 through 12. 
But yet his friends argue that he actually is, wrongly. And if you look at the disciples in John chapter 9, Jesus said to them when they asked if the man who was born blind, whether he sinned or his parents, and Jesus says this in chapter 9, verse 3. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But if you were to look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32, you would understand that, yes, it is possible to suffer for persistent failure to repent of sin. He says that is why some of the Corinthians were actually ill, why they were weak, and some of them had even died. If we look at Hebrews 12.6, we're told that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us like a parent does with a child, not because he hates us, but in order to help us learn and to grow from our behavior. How do we put all this together? Those are a lot of different texts. Well, I want to say this. When suffering comes into our lives, the thing we should not automatically assume is that we are being punished for our sin. That, is not, that should not be our initial automatic assumption. That was, Job's, that was the error of Job's friends and Jesus' disciples. That was the mistake they made. But at the same time, it is a cause for us to search our hearts for any unconfessed sin that we're not actively putting to death. If there is, then we simply need to do what the scriptures tell us to do, to repent and to to confess and repent of our sins. You see, not all suffering is a direct result of our sin. Job and John 9 teach us that. But sometimes that can be the case, like in 1 Corinthians 11, as God disciplines those he loves. It can be the case when a husband cheats on his wife, he's going to suffer consequences for his sin in those ways. But I want to be clear, and we need to understand this. The amount of suffering a person ever experiences in this world, in this life, is in no way proportional to their sin. Let me say that again. The amount of suffering a person experiences in this life is in no way proportional to his or her sin, and that's important. Because remember this, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he took all your sin to the cross. Every past, every present, every future sin was atoned for. And only Jesus experienced and atoned for completely on our behalf the full weight of our sin. It has been paid for, but yet we can still experience discipline as sons whom he loves in order to refine us and to grow us in holiness. Bad things happen for discipline in the sense of 1 Corinthians 11, but they also happen in the sense of for training, like in Job's case, or like when Jesus sends his disciples in Mark 6 out across the water knowing they're going to face a storm. He did that knowing they were going to face that so that they could learn and grow through that process. So how do these reasons? How do these reasons actually help us face evil and suffering? In suffering, God has a purpose in it. And you can see that by how he constantly does not allow evil to have its desired end. In other words, he thwarts evil. And he does this constantly. What do I mean? 
Well, we have different examples in Scripture, like Joseph in the Old Testament. If you remember, Joseph in the Old Testament sold into slavery. His brothers betray him, sell him into slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house as a servant, and there he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He ends up in prison. Things are low for him, but yet God eventually restores him, makes him second in command of Egypt. And eventually later on when his brothers are before him and he has all the power and he reveals himself to his brothers and his brothers are scared out of their minds thinking he's going to wipe them out. Joseph points out something. Joseph says this in Genesis 50, 19 and 20. Do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so God thwarts evil by preserving life, bringing good out of evil. But also God thwarts evil. We see this with Job. He thwarts evil by not allowing evil to destroy us, but instead he will use that to build our faith as he does with Job. Job suffers not for any particular sin that he did. He was righteous, Job 1, verse 1. And he wasn't suffering for his sin. But yet he loses his house, his goods, his kids, and he's afflicted with sores. And overall, his response to that in Job 1 and chapter 2, his first response was worship. And he did not sin or charge God with wrong, as the scriptures say. And he did not sin with his lips. But then his friends come and they sit with him for seven days and they don't say a word. It was the best thing they ever did. But then they open their mouth and they start to speak and they basically tell Job that what has happened to him is because he has sinned. And if he would just simply repent, then things would go back to normal. And Job responds that it's not because he has sinned, which is right. He's right. But then things shift as the book of Job advances. Job starts to question God's justice. He would like a meeting with God and to have God answer him in chapter 23. But when Job finally gets a meeting, God questions him with over 60 different questions that really reveal Job's ignorance. God shows his power and his glory in contrast to Job's limited understanding and power. And what's Job's response? He repents. You see, God will allow suffering to come into our lives to do a sanctifying work in us, to reveal us. But he uses suffering in our lives contrary to what it was intended to do. Remember, Satan wanted uh, to, to have this suffering cause Job to curse God. That was Satan's end. That was what he wanted. And it doesn't happen. Instead, God used the suffering to do a sanctifying work in Job. So that in the end, after challenging God's justice and being questioned by God, Job repents, following even stronger after the Lord. And so God thwarts evil and he uses it to build our faith. Suffering can have a tendency to focus us on the here and now so that we can easily lose sight of what our future is. And God's desire is for us to look at our glorious future. And God thwarts evil by giving us and desiring us to look to our future. 
This is something Paul brings out for us. In 2 Corinthians 11, we read about all kinds of suffering that Paul went through. How he was whipped, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was adrift at sea, he had many journeys, danger, toil, hardship, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, cold, and the pressure of his anxiety for all the churches. But yet he knew and he relished his future. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so then he says later on in another letter, 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One day, God is going to wipe out evil finally and fully. Spoiler alert, God wins. And he wipes it out, and it will be no more. And there is a glorious future ahead for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what gives us hope here and now in our time. You know, in the suffering question, it's easy to put God on the docket, to call his character into question, and to ask the question of, is he really good? Is he really loving? How could he do this? But as we ask those questions, we can't miss what he has actually done for us in Christ. We cannot say that God is not loving and not good. That actually isn't open to us. Look at what he did for us through Jesus Christ. Look at what he did for you and I who are sinful and wicked and do not deserve to be saved. He sent his son. He didn't have to do anything, and instead he did everything so that we could have life through faith in Christ. Jesus took the wrath of God against sin, all of it. He satisfied God's justice while not doing damage to mercy. In the cross of Christ, the problem of how a guilty people who deserve death and are instead given life is reconciled and brought together. In Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice, he satisfies the justice that law demands, that had to be paid. And then through faith in Christ, mercy and grace come to a people instead of judgment. Suffering, evil, it points us to the cross to find the answer to the problem of evil. God the Father loved us so much that he gave his son over to suffering and death so you and I could have life. The Father truly knows what you have gone through and what you are going through. Jesus Christ knows what you are going through and what you have gone through. And Jesus experienced more suffering than you and I will ever comprehend. And if the Father was willing to sacrifice his Son, and the Son was willing to endure what he did for you and I, do you think you and I can trust him in our circumstances, trust him with what we have experienced in life? Can you trust him when it doesn't make sense and you don't understand and you don't know why he's doing what exactly he is doing? 
Can you trust him and cling to him when he says that you are not alone, that I am with you, that he is Emmanuel, God with us by the Spirit? In our pain, it should press us closer to Christ, the one who knows our pain intimately and the one who carries us through. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is with us in those times. When you see evil in this world, lament, like in Psalm 13 this morning. Use that language. When you see evil in yourself, repent, like in Psalm 51. But resist the urge to go to some form of numbing distraction, panic, despair, and fear. Instead, look to Christ in faith. Tell him what you are feeling. Tell him what this is actually doing to you. I'm serious about this. Tell him what you are feeling. Tell him what it's doing to you physically and mentally. Ask him the hard questions. Not as a challenge to his character, but as a child to their father. Pleading for help and pleading for understanding. Because it will be there that then our eyes will be drawn up to his character to see and behold who he is. When suffering hits, whether within or without, you and I are going to go somewhere and do something with it. We're going to try to find some way to cope. And only in going to Christ will we find actual lasting peace and real hope. And so I want to encourage you this morning, encourage us all this morning, go to him. Tell him, and you will find yourself persevering in faith. Let's pray. Father, there's much in this world that we cannot make sense of. Many things in this world that we experience and face that leave us perplexed, leave us frustrated, leave us angry. Father, we bring those things before you and we invite you into our lives. We ask that you would give us perspective. Father, that you would give us understanding, that you would show us your grace and your mercy. Remind us anew that you know what we're going through and that you've gone before us and you've made a way and that there is a wonderful salvation we have now and that awaits us in the future. Father, will you be our comfort? Will you be our hope? Will you be our rock? Will you be our refuge? And will you help us to run to you, not to run to these broken cisterns that we run to so many times, but to run to you and to find answers there as we behold you and your character. Encourage our hearts, I pray, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.